Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. So we're going to read a handful of verses here to kind of set the context for for what's about to happen. I might have one interlude uh, as we're reading the scripture, but stick with me. This is John chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. It says, When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. The, the, The side note of this is, maybe two interludes, the side note of this is, He was already dead when Jesus received the message. Jesus waiting where he was was not something where he was stalling and and waiting for for something uh, to take place here. Lazarus has already been dead when he receives the message. So he's not going with the chance that he could have been there when Lazarus was still alive. That that ship had sailed, uh, and Jesus shows up when Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. It's also Jewish custom to bury people on the same day that they die. Okay, remember last week we talked about how the spirit sort of hovers for the first three days, and then on the fourth day, the spirit is gone, according to some rabbinic teaching. Okay, Bethany was a little less than two miles from Jerusalem. Many Jews had come to comfort Martha and Mary after their brother's death. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him while Mary remained in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask God, God will give you. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Check out Martha's response here. She replies, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Interlude number two, real quick. Resurrection was not something that was built into the fabric of the biblical narrative. This is something that was late in coming in, in, in the mindset of most Jewish people. This is something that would happen in the late Old Testament. We have a text in Ezekiel chapter 37 where the dry bones begin to take on flesh and are resurrected. It's a metaphor. We also have a text in Isaiah that some people think is pushing us in this direction. This is a late text of Isaiah in the post-exilic period. And we also have a, a, a line in the book of Daniel, which may be one of the last books of the Old Testament to be written that talks about people being raised from the dead. And we also have that really weird story, remember, in the intertestamental period. You've got the Old Testament over here and all the books that go along with that. You've got the New Testament over here. And in the middle, you've got the really sexy, really (laughs) chic, really interesting books in the intertestamental period leading up into the New Testament. And one of those books is named 2 Maccabees. Not 1 Maccabees, not 3 Maccabees, not 4 Maccabees. Those are all real books, by the way. But 2 Maccabees. And there are seven brothers that are told 
to uh, go against the teaching in the Torah and they won't do it and they end up being burned alive and they make these statements at the, uh, before they are killed and they say, we will not do this because we know that God will be faithful to the covenant so much so that even past our own death, we will be raised from the dirt and given new life. And Martha plays into this. So in this first century context, she also knows like, yeah, Jesus, I get it. Lazarus will be raised from the dead because God has to be good and God has to vindicate himself and God has to make good on the promises that he's given to his people. And even if they die, they must be raised from the dead. This was the concept in Jewish thinking. Jesus completely demolishes that line of thinking, okay? But here she says, I know that he will rise on the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though they die. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, that you are the Messiah, that you are the anointed one, that you are the one that we have all been waiting for, that you are God's son, the one who is coming into the world. This is a loaded statement in John's gospel. After she said this, she went and spoke privately to her sister Mary. The teacher is here and he's calling for you. Remember this whole thing that when Jesus shows up in this territory, the word could have gotten out and he could have uh, been killed quickly. So there's private messaging that's happening between the sisters because they don't want to make a big to-do about Jesus and alert the authorities to where he is and what he could potentially be doing. She says, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to Jesus. He hadn't entered the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were comforting Mary in the house saw her get up quickly and leave, they followed her. They assumed she was going to mourn at the tomb. When Mary arrived where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. This is virtually the same thing that Martha says to Jesus. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying also, he was deeply disturbed and troubled. These are really weighty verbs in the Greek. This is not just he kind of feels bad. He's, he's moved. Anguish almost would be a good uh, way of phrasing this. In fact, that first verb there sometimes connotes anger. So some commentators have wondered, what is Jesus angry about? He's deeply disturbed, and then he asks, where have you laid him? They replied, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to cry. For the King James people that, that grew up with that back in the day, this is the line that says, Jesus wept. Okay, Jesus began to cry. The Jews said, see how much he loved him. But some of them said, he healed the eyes of the man born blind. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? It's important that when Mary goes out, the mourners go out with her because this starts the controversy. There's people that don't know what to do with Jesus. And at the end of the story, it's kind of split. Some go off and, and demand that Jesus dies and other people begin to believe in what Jesus is doing. You would think <laughs> that raising a guy from the dead might seal the deal, right? people are pretty fickle. Like that's, that's not good enough because when you're sold out to your system, it's really hard to break free of that. And we're no different. Jesus was deeply disturbed again when he came to the tomb. 
It was a cave and a stone covered the entrance. The word of God for the people of God. I did want to tell you the end of the story. He, he raises Lazarus from the dead. It's cool, but we're not focused on that today. That, that'll be next week. Our way into this uh, set of texts, I think, would be to spend some time with our dear friend Marcus J. Borg. He is a late New Testament professor that was, that was very much known for his controversy. Uh, the way that he interpreted the New Testament, it was very different than, than many, particularly evangelical people people like us or people like where we have come from, the way that he read the Bible, it was very, very different. And a handful of years ago, he wrote a book called The God We Never Knew, where he's writing for a popular audience, and he's basically taking all the stuff, the smart stuff that he has learned his entire life, and he's bringing it to bear and saying, when I was growing up, this wasn't the Jesus that was handed to me. In fact, when I was in the church, I believe he was raised in a Lutheran church somewhere in North Dakota, I think, somewhere in that general region. His God was a finger-pointing God. It was a God that was filled with vindictiveness and vengeance and, and anger and wrath, and that wrath was pointed at us until Jesus stepped in front of it and took all of it for us. And it's this guilt and shame-based gospel that Borg knew growing up until finally he takes all this stuff and he begins to repackage. Some people might call this a deconstruction and a reconstruction. He begins to see what the world is like and, and he starts thinking against some of the boxes that he has inherited and now wondering what it looks like. So he wants to introduce people to the God we never knew because for most of us, the God that we do know is a God that might not necessarily be so nice and so loving. One scholar also has this same sort of idea, and he begins to say that it's not enough to say that one believes in God. What is important, finally, is the kind of God in whom one believes. Now, I've told you, as much as I stand up here, I bring all of my junk to bear in these kinds of conversations grew up in a Christian home, went to Christian school from kindergarten through 12th grade. I know all of the kitschy Christian things. I went to Bible college. The way that you got girls at Bible college was to sit on your stoop and play, Lord, I lift your name on high. <laughs> like that's a very, it's a, it's a bubbled dwelling, okay? I, but I do think that if that's not your story, and I imagine that it's not most of your stories, <laughs> you still have a conception of who God is you still have some understanding of the God that you either are following or the God that you are taking a few steps back. And I would also posit to say that Borg's finger-pointy God is probably one that we are generally familiar with. At some point, the gospel was, believe this or else hell is in your future. And we pee our pants and we say, okay, and we sign the card and we do whatever we need to do in order for God not to hate us so much. But when you, when you begin to, to ask these sorts of questions, what kind of God is it that we are actually believing? I think that we can begin to, uh, to see really the, the locus point or the center point of, of our faith and what it is. One of the things that I think is usually inherited for people is this dichotomy between the God of the Old Testament and Jesus. 
Jesus is meek and mild and loving. And Jesus says things like, if you get struck in your cheek, turn the other cheek. And then you turn the pages into the Old Testament and you see God like destroying whole people groups. And there's this divide between the two that's happening. This isn't just us. This isn't just our 21st century American ideas that are going back into this text. This is something that people have struggled with from the very, outset of Christianity. There was a heretic in the second century named Marcion who basically took the Old Testament and chucked it saying, I can't get on board with that because that God is atrocious. But Jesus, yes, he is good. And for many of us, we have this sort of dichotomy. It's been popularized by people like Richard Dawkins, who is a noted atheist, uh, part of the the four horsemen of, of atheism or something like that. Uh, he's, he's well known and he writes in such a, a way that makes us consider what it is that he's saying. And his uh, attempt to boil down the Old Testament is well known. I even quoted it a few, maybe a couple months ago. It says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, note, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. (laughs) If you wanna like tuck that away, just so you can like, somebody really gets on your nerves and you just just throw that out. Oh yeah, well you're up. And then just do that. It's a lot. But if you do break down each of those words and you have your dictionary there to know what they mean, you can find where Dawkins is seeing some of this in the Old Testament. And he really struggles and pushes back because the God of the Old Testament seems to be one who's filled with wrath and anger. And for many people, we believe that Jesus fixes the problem of the Old Testament. Oh, that God's angry, Jesus is nice. That God's violent, Jesus is a pacifist. That God is whatever, Jesus is something completely opposite, and that's usually how we square these things away. However, the Gospel of John wants to push back against that because the depiction of Jesus is one where he is working in concert with the Father, so much so that they are one. In fact, in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. The things that I'm about are the things that he's about. The things that I'm doing are the things that he's doing. All of these, it's unified where Jesus and the Father are together. The word that you hear isn't mine, Jesus says. It's the word of the Father who sent me. He's linking the actions. He's linking the words. He's saying everything that the Father uh, has is mine. And then climactically he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. There's a linking between Jesus and God in the pages of John's gospel, so much so that you cannot divorce the God of the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament. So perhaps the things that we see Jesus doing in the pages of the New Testament tell us something about who God is. Perhaps when we see this line here, Jesus wept. This is not divorced from God. This is an action that God participates in and is an action that's emblematic of who God is at the very core of God's being. 
I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, like the Jesus wept stuff, that was part of the, see, Jesus is nice and his dad's super ticked. And we don't bring those two things together, which is what the author in the Gospel of John is so desperate for us to see these two things belong together. So when Jesus weeps, perhaps God weeps as well. Now, I do wanna say, the tidbit, again, this is like, let's section it off, and the people that have spent a lot of time in church and you've memorized verses and whatever, and you maybe know the anecdote like, oh, the shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept. Anybody, is this just me? Well, let me, let me give you a little factoid here, okay, from our dear friend, Derek Webb. I got this from his Twitter account, and we'll just, we'll just leave that over there for the people that, that know, let the, let the listener understand. Actually, the shortest verse in the Greek Bible is from Luke chapter 20, verse 30, and the verse just says, and the second. This is in the story where the Sadducees are saying, suppose a woman has a husband and that husband dies and then she marries the brother and then a second and a third and this happens like, um, this isn't really part of the sermon but this is, just, this is just a factoid. Okay, so just understand it here. Um, verses weren't part of the deal, right? When Paul was writing, he didn't say, okay, this is Romans chapter eight, uh, verse one. He's just writing, it's a letter. The verses in a sense have screwed us royally because they turn whole discourses into memorizable things that we just rip out of context that we put on t-shirts and mugs <laughs> and then we send them to people and they're just they're they're terribly the not you know not they're not helpful because they're not doing what they're supposed to do so and the second if you need a I, again this is like kitschy if, if you need a life verse and <laughs> I would just here. Um, you can see this is and the second in the Greek text, and this is and Jesus wept or Jesus began to weep, and you can see which one has more letters, class? <laughs> it's this one, right? And in fact, you want to get super fancy, this is actually the third shortest verse in the Greek New Testament, because there's one in 1 Thessalonians 5 which says, rejoice always. So it, it loses on two accounts. One, the, the one in 1 Thessalonians is actually two words, and two, it's got two verses that are shorter than that. So thank you, Derek Webb. <laughs> Nothing to do with what we're talking about. It's a little factoid there. Jesus weeps, and perhaps the tears that Jesus is weeping are symbolic of the tears of God as well, because God is invested in the lives of God's people. Later on, we see that when Jesus sees Mary again, it says, when Jesus sees her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying also, he was deeply disturbed. Again, these are visceral sorts of verbs. This is not just he's sort of tangentially uh, moved. He's like, he's broken because his friend is in the midst of grief. And then finally, it says that Jesus was disturbed again when he comes to the tomb. And he writes, says, throughout the gospel, John is telling us something much more striking than just what we, have, what we have heard before. Like, oh, this just shows us that Jesus was human. 
No, nobody was struggling with that. Nobody was wrestling with that as, as these letters were, were being written or as these books were being written. It, it's more important that we see something different, that when we look at Jesus, not least when we look at Jesus in tears, we are seeing not just a flesh and blood human being, but the word made flesh, the word through whom the worlds were made, weeps like a baby at the grave of his friend. Don't allow this to be something that you know. Allow this to be something that you feel. That the God of the universe is invested in the lives of God's people so that when we weep, God weeps. The word through whom the worlds were made weeps like a baby at the grave of his friend. This is a stupid slide. Read it and just say, yeah, that is stupid. I shouldn't have to be up here saying, grief is not an inappropriate response to death, right? I shouldn't have to say that. But in the church, it sure feels that way. One of the, the parts of my job uh, is being around people in the midst of, of grief, to be at funerals and committals and these, these moments in life that are super weighty. And one of the things that I have noticed, just as an observer, is the way that the people that are officiating these sorts of things will say things like, oh, so-and-so doesn't want you to be sad. It's important, that this is like the implication, it's important that you are happy. It's like we don't even allow ourselves to have a funeral, we must have a celebration of life. And there's nothing wrong with these things as they stand, but for the American church, we're not attuned to grief. We want grief to be gone as quickly as possible. We don't want to have to think about things that are important for very long. We want to move on, and the people around us want us to move on so that the people around us can feel comfortable again in our presence. Grief is not an inappropriate response. We learn this from this passage because when Jesus rolls up, he starts to weep. Back up just, just one step with me. I'd like to posit a theory to you that based on the story in John's gospel, Jesus knows how it ends. Remember, he prays that prayer and says, thank you. Not can you, but thank you. It seems like he's got a pretty good inkling where this is going, yet he still is invested in his people and gets down to their level where they are and weeps with them in a truly empathetic way. You guys know Brene Brown? There's a lot of white, middle-aged women in here, so I would assume so. That, okay. Sorry, sorry. Middle-aged was too far. I went too far, Christy. I'm sorry. Everybody's looking around like, who, me? Doesn't matter. <laughs> Doesn't matter. This one's not going to translate to the podcast here. Um, note, there are some women in the... 
in the seats here. So we know Brene Brown, and what she's famous for is for her uh, talks on empathy. Like you get in the hole, you go down, you say, I see you down there, I'll be there in a minute, and you climb down in the hole where the people are, you just sit with them. This is what Jesus is doing and showing us that grief is not an inappropriate response, even though he knows that the story is going somewhere. In contrast to this, this is Lauren Winner. Uh, she's a literature professor, I believe, at Duke. Uh, this is one of her early books. It's really short, it's really good. It's about the, the rituals within Judaism uh, that she thinks still have some, some teaching value uh, today. Uh, that sounded more pejorative than I wanted it to. She wants to recapture some of the, uh, these, these rituals from Judaism and, and bring them back to life. It says, church funerals, when they tell the truth, not only remember lovingly the lives of the departed, they also preach the gospel. <clears throat> they proclaim that Jesus is risen and insist that those who died in him shall be risen too. Great, what churches often do less well is grieve. And we lack a ritual for the long and tiring process that is sorrow and loss. Contrast this with Judaism. Even in this passage, it's, it, it's assuming that we understand that Martha and Mary are sitting in the home, that they're not supposed to be leaving the home for a period of seven days, which is known as sitting shiva. shiva. The people will come to them. They will bring food to the people, sit with them, perhaps in, in the silence of the moment, and allow the grief to be felt and not rush people past it. Shiva ends after seven days, but they enter into a time of shloshim, which is the 30. It's, it's a month process where it allows people to, to ease back into the routines. They begin going back to the synagogue. I found this to be really fascinating, but they sit outside during the celebratory moments of the service so that they don't have to, to participate. And then in week two, they come back in, but they leave very quickly. I think I might be butchering the, the order here, but it's not like an all for one where it's like, okay, you've had your seven days, now get back into it. It's this process that lasts up to a year where people are having to grieve well. And we see how this is informing the text that we have here. We don't have these rituals of mourning because as Americans, we want to be good and we want to be okay. And we don't want to do with anything that makes us feel or hurt, we want to rush past that. Uh, one scholar named Walter Brueggemann talks about the costly loss of lament in the church because we don't make space for this sort of stuff. It's particularly difficult as someone who plays music from time to time to find any sort of songs that are not like, celebrate Jesus and all the good stuff, celebrate everything's happy and everything's great. There's, it's hard to find a song that's like, this is hard and my life stinks. I'll trust you, but I don't like it. But that's, 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 half, of the, that's half of the book of Psalms. I should write and record that. Yeah. Everybody, we'll do a round. This side and this side. My life stinks and I'm not happy. I'm not either. It's just responsive stuff. Um, but that's, a, that's like half of the book of Psalms. I'm in the pit, God's nowhere to be seen, this is terrible, I'm gonna keep doing it, but I'm not happy about it. Like, it, it's, 
We don't have space for that. And what Walter Brueggemann says is because of that, we rush to the rejoicing, we rush to the thanksgiving, and we don't allow ourselves moments to grieve. One, we don't allow ourselves moments to ask big questions of God, like look around the world, God, this is a big fat train wreck. What are we gonna do about this? What are you gonna do about this? What can I do to help you do something about this? That's a real conversation that should be had. It should also be a conversation in the midst of something where you have true covenantal relationship with people. That's a fancy word. Just think about it in terms of like you are, you are in it with someone else. And when that happens, you must have conversations that aren't always, I'm happy and I'm okay. It's, what about the dishes, man? When are we gonna clean the house? These are conversations that I certainly don't have um, because I would just, I guess I would just clean the house myself. Kate laughed. I was trying to say, I was trying to save it because as soon as I said that, I was like, oh, that's, why would it, that's terrible because I shouldn't be assuming that Kate, I'm going to move on. Um, yes, please. Thank you. Okay. We're all feeling uncomfortable. I'm just going to go back here for a minute. <clears throat> we have to have these conversations that, that are difficult and you must have those conversations that are difficult with God as well when your life isn't potentially working out how you want it to. But I would also posit that what we learn is that in these, in these covenantal relationships, they're two-sided. This is not just something that we're going through and we're saying all this stuff to God, but this is a give and take, this is a dialogue. And perhaps what we learn from Jesus weeping and perhaps what we learn from Jesus and, and God being one together in this, perhaps what we see in this passage is that God is one who suffers as well. This is the part where we, we are, we're like tiptoeing around the controversy because I don't know if this is something that I ever grew up hearing, but it just seems so patently obvious to me that God, because God is in relationship with these people, that God is suffering because of what it is that they are going through. We too often believe that God is removed from it all and is just looking down saying like, ah, tough beans, man. It may get better, it may not, but I've got nothing to do with this. And that's not what we see in the text. One example of this comes from the book of Exodus chapter two, where it says that God hears the groanings of the people. And then it goes into something ridiculously cool. It says that God remembers the covenant that he makes with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And then it gives us these bullet point verbs here at the end. God sees the people of Israel in their turmoil, in their suffering, in their servitude, in their crying out, and in their groaning. God sees them, and God knows. And this isn't just an intellectual knowing. This is a participatory knowing. This is an experiential knowing. This is a God who feels what his people are feeling in this story. Terence Fretheim says that God is depicted here as one who is intimately involved in the suffering of the people, having entered into their sufferings in such a way as to have experienced what they are having to endure too. God is not removed on high, looking down, saying, gut it out for a little bit longer. God is at the top of the, of the well saying, I see you down there. I'll be with you in a minute and crawls down and sits with his people and weeps as they weep. He sees them. He knows them. He experiences the grief that they are experiencing because God is in relationship with us and God feels when we feel. 
We've removed that quality from God and turned God into this transcendental thing that we cannot access, which is not true. God suffers because of the things that we go through, because of what is going on in the world, God is intimately involved in these things. God is with the sufferer. There's all sorts of Psalms that talk about, um, even in Psalm 23, it says, I'm in the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil for you are with me in the valley of the death shadow. You can't be there as an un- Uh, moved participant in the midst of that. If you're with someone in the midst of their suffering, you are with them in the midst of their suffering. You are participating with them in that. God is with the sufferer. God feels. God uh, mourns. There's texts throughout the Old Testament that talk about God mourning with those who are mourning. And because God is in relationship with these people, God is taking risks we might not want to be in relationship with him. There's this covenant that's happening here and God is feeling these things and the story of Jesus weeping over the death of his friend might be symbolic of some of these things that are true of God in his divinity. This is the stuff that gets me in trouble. And we've got a lot of people in the room tonight, so welcome. Maybe we'll see half of half less of you next week. I don't think that it's wrong for churches to get political. Meaning, I don't think it's wrong for us to address things that seem to be at the very heart of God. I'm not going to wear my 2020 candidate t-shirt and reveal that to you up here, but I don't think that we should assume that everything that we see on the news is devoid from the relationship that we have with Jesus. And if I'm gonna be up here talking about how God is mourning and God is feeling and God is risking and God is involved in the lives of his people, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps some of the stuff that we see on fill in the blank with your news outlet of choice is something that is grieving God. I'll tell you a story, and this is, this is, I guess it's political, I don't know. I said a couple of things online, which I would encourage all of you just to never be online ever, because uh, <laughs> nothing good comes from it. But I said something to the effect of, this was when um, all of the immigration stuff was really problematic. And I said something in, in this sort of vein, and someone came back and said, um, you can't say that the kids at the border who have been put into detainment are God's kids because that's political. Might it be, (laughs) might it be better for us to allow God to feel that pain of family separation? Might it be better for us to allow God to, to be mourning with those who haven't seen their parents? Might it be better for us to think that God is wanting of our political structure to to do something? Might it be worth us wondering if God is remembering and seeing and knowing, experiencing, feeling? 
Now, if you're sitting in the room, you're like, mm, this makes me uncomfortable, this makes me uncomfortable, I don't like politics. This is Jesus stuff. Because at the core, if we cease caring about people because of our political allegiances, what are we doing? And why are we doing it? If our praise and our prayers and our stuff is confined to this space and it has no sort of impact on the people out there, then what's the point? I'd also say that we can get not just political, but we can get personal. Because it's easy for us to talk about uh, the immigration crisis. It's easy for us to talk about how certain people groups are being treated. It's easy for us to talk about racism and how that's not us and we're not white supremacists. And it's easy for us to talk about these sorts of things. But I don't want it to, to leave it in, in the world of postulation and, and hypotheses. I also believe that whatever it is that you're going through, relational, financial, vocational, spiritual, emotional, whatever that is, might it be God mourns with you when you mourn, that God sees and God remembers and God knows and God experiences the things that you're experiencing and that God has taken this risk to be in relationship with you and God is wanting to surround you with God's love and embrace, might that be something that we can get on board with? And when we connect all of these dots that God is this risk-taking, love with abandon, suffering entity, Jesus' tears become more than just cool, Jesus is like me. It's Jesus's tears are symbolic of the tears that are shed over the wrongs of the world, but also the issues in my own life that maybe I don't have control over. And maybe I'm just longing for him to do something about. And maybe I just need to be reminded that when I'm walking in the valley of the shadow of death that he's with me that when I feel like I'm in the hole that Brene Brown has created for me, that Jesus sees me and says, I see you down there, I'll be there in a moment. And it would be foolish for me, as a Christian pastor, to pass up this opportunity. Might it also be the case that when Jesus is weeping over the death of his friend Lazarus, that it's not just the feelings that Mary has but it's the anticipation that Jesus is feeling to his own death, knowing that when humanity does its very worst, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, even if that means he allows us to nail him to a cross. And do not, friends, do not, separate Jesus and his weeping from God and his mourning over his son in that moment as well. I and the Father are one. And the mourning that takes place because of this act of sacrifice and self-giving love is something that we probably cannot even begin to fathom.
but I'm hopeful that it allows us to have hope. I'm hopeful that it allows us to remember that we are seen and that we are known. I'm hopeful that it allows us to uh, understand that when Jesus cries, it's not just a, a thing that becomes Bible trivia, but it's a thing that perhaps can feed our very souls, that wherever it is that we go and whatever it is that we do, that we have a Savior who is walking in lockstep with us. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restoresby or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.